Welcome to Entrepreneurial Reality with Bash. Every week we'll be speaking to startup and scale-up founders to learn about them, their ambitions for the business, goals and objectives. Every conversation is a moment in time, documenting entrepreneurs' current situation with a view to coming back next year to see how they are getting on. Each journey will be different. Each innovation could be game-changing. I hope you enjoy. So welcome to Entrepreneurial Reality with Bash, Series 1, Episode 10, and I'm delighted to have Sam with me. Thank you, thank you. And if you could be so kind as to introduce yourself, uh, the projects you're working on, and a bit about your background of how you've, you've got to where you are today, that would be great. Perfect. So yes, my name is Sam, or Sam Patchett. I am 26, and I'm here to today to really chat to you about the first project, my first my first love, which is uh, which is Yellow Label. To give you a bit of background about how Yellow Label started um, and what it's about, because uh, the two are completely interlinked, so I might as well give you the full spiel. Go for it. So me and my mates were in the library one night uh, while studying my master's in Leeds, and it was getting, you know, like 12 o'clock and you're getting hungry, and we literally had the decision whereby, I'm hungry, do I want to go and spend 50 minutes walking to the local Tesco's to buy food, or do I want to carry on revising? I'm a hungry poor student do I actually want to t- make that trip and guess and we thought wouldn't it be brilliant if I knew what was in there and s- simply put I wanted transparency between myself and the store to make my my buying decision and then we thought brilliant that'd be a really neat thing to do that'd be really cool then actually like literally three weeks later we entered a competition about you know we had to design an app in a day and we thought let's do this one you know literally we, we talked about it revising wouldn't it be brilliant if we could do this so then we we started and we actually won the competition which was really fun and it was only after that that we started realizing the problem of food waste so before it's about necessity it's about information it's mm-hmm. about me wanting to see items and then once we delve into the problem we thought actually tesco's and morrison's and asda and any major retailer is throwing away a ton of food and by actually opening up transparency between the store and the the paying or the want the local paying customer you can start to alleviate that uh, food waste by just saying there, is a, there are people out there that will pay money for the food you have in your store, but they don't know it, so they don't bother. And so that's how it started. It started out as a need and then, you know, a social need and then an environmental need. And then that's how we sort of grew the project from there. And so winning the award, building out the application, could you tell us a bit more about the process of building an application? I, I don't have any technical skills. And uh, it, for me, that, that would be a significant hurdle to create such an application. It took a, a really long time. <laughs> um, you know, I, we came up with the, that idea in, I'm going to think, probably like January 2015. I think is, you know, kind of idea inception, you know, kind of eureka moment. And then, you know, we had our studies and we were doing our doing our own thing. We won that competition in probably April, May 15. We then only incorporated the company in February 2016. So, you know, after we finished our studies and, and we actually decided we were going to go for this. We got a lot of help from the university and they gave us office space and some grant funding to go and do as we pleased. You know, the funding was very generous um, and we were able to just go and do. But none of us were technical. Okay, we were three people who are business mind. We're doing international business as the masters to mm-hmm. give you a bit of context to that one. But none of us could code the app. Okay, none of us could actually build it. So we went looking for funding, we went looking for support to see where we could get it from. And that was a long road to nowhere, to be brutally honest, because we were three lads, you know, fresh out of uni. We're all, what, 23? 223 you know at this point and no one is going to invest in that you know quite rightly and i'm not saying that like begrudgingly no one is investing in that project because there are three fresh-faced boys with an idea who have none of the skills to take that forward <laughs> so it, t- it took us a really long time to get over that it's, it's more like a personal problem mm. you know we knew the idea was good no one was doubting that no one was saying i'm not investing because the idea is bad people weren't investing or weren't taking the conversation forward because we were bad and that's a really, it was a big, a big personal problem to overcome. Like, actually, we need to change. We either need to change to get the money or we need to find a different route to market. And so it actually came about the first time that we took some time away from the company. We decided, let's just do this ourselves. Let's find a more agile or a more, uh, you might say slower, but a, a route to market that we can control, mm-hmm. not that we rely on someone else coming in and providing all the funding for 
So our first our first app, if you can call it an app, was just a Facebook group, which is obviously completely free mm-hmm. to set up. And all we did is we went into our local Tesco's, we recorded all of the reduced price items because that's what again that's what we're dealing with. I don't you know poor students wants the cheapest item in the store. I don't really mm-hmm. care about the full price pepsis and you know branded goods it was the reduced price items that we really cared about because as long as i can afford so we just started literally going into that store writing down on our phones all the all the yellow labeled items and then publish them to a facebook group and that facebook group was populated with local students so literally on campus for the campus shop (laughs) and that's that was essentially our first app because it was a working product that people accessed on their phones which Mm. If you forget it's Facebook, it's it's an app essentially at the end of the day. So we did that. It didn't work really well, but it got a really good response. Um, right? Did it, people actually use it? Use the not the information you gave we get, them? And, you know, and we got to... yeah, we got like we got like you know five six hundred people into the group, which for the fact that it was for one store mm-hmm. on Leeds University campus, I think is fairly is a is a lot. It's more than we way more than we expected. We thought it was going to be like twenty thirty people. Mm-hmm. We you know we got well into the hundreds. People were using it and like liking it, and we started getting other like companies like uh, local businesses saying they wanted to use it as like publicity to advertise their stuff and um, like local sandwich shops and and the like they were they used to come up, come to us and say like can you advertise this for us you know because we had a group of you know 600 people who were active yeah fantastic were... why stay at just the the big superstores why not go to every store that produces food that's perishable exactly i mean like the reason we we often get asked this question a lot like why why food you know, there, there are plenty of stuff that goes on sale. You know, every single fast-moving consumer good goes on sale at some point, you know, from like T-shirts to sofas to literally whatever. We only focus on food because it's the most perishable. You know, you have hours. There's a, a sofa will, never, will go out of fashion, but it will never go out of expiry. Yes, <laughs> it, yeah. it won't become wrong, you know, as, as a product. But food does. And especially the food that we deal with, you know, fridge food, which is, you know, nine. I think about 70% of the food that we deal with is fridge-based food. Mm-hmm. That goes out of date within hours, not within weeks. So it's the most perishable. It's literally like, you know, if it's not sold today, it's de- it's unedible and will be chucked in the bin. We did, yeah, like I said, um, that's the only reason we stuck to to food. And then, like I said, you know, that that extrapolate that to sandwiches, to bakeries, mm-hmm. to any any sort of food seller. Most of it's kept in the fridge. So anything that's kept in the fridge has a short expiry date, and therefore we can do that. Going back a few steps after the success of the Facebook group, we then thought maybe we can raise again off this. You know, went back to our original like our original idea and failed again. And you know, we we had a few put a few feelers out there and thought you know maybe this is gonna this is gonna work now. To who? To who? Who did you approach initially then? And we approached our our network of people and said, look, we've gone away. We had this idea and it wasn't enough. So we've gone away and got a group of people that like the idea. Now can we? Rage, you know the drawing the drawings were the same the plan was the same it was mm-hmm. just now we have a bit more market proof that it's going to work and it was still a no fine you know again that's absolutely fine we went away and we realized that there are loads and loads of softwares out there where you can build your own app okay really really easily and i mean super easily none of us are technical minded at all or can really code or do anything like that at all but there are apps out there where you can drag and drop like build your own service. I mean, literally the one we used, um, I think it's called App Machine for anyone out there that uh, it's really, really good. Um, it's literally, you build your app like a Lego. So you literally, functions are Lego bricks. And you say, I want this function, I want this function, I want this function. And then you have an app at the end of it that works. That's really cool. And there are loads and loads of services out there that let you do that. Enough so that we spent most of our time comparing the different services rather than finding one. You know, it's, it's that it's that popular. So we just found one that used all the functionality that we needed. Things like location, you know, maps, uh, input and outputs, you know, little nuances like do you have to update the app every time you change the information or can you just release an update and it does it automatically, you know. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with fast-moving consumer goods that change by the hour, you can't have people downloading a new version every time you release new information. Th- these kind of like little features, we had to figure out which service was the best. Mm-hmm. And then when we did, we, we used it. Building that first app, paying for the app store and the service was probably like 300 pounds which most entrepreneurs can bundle together if you're willing to scale down your functionality to test a test a concept then it's probably the best thing you can ever do mm-hmm. instead of you know immediately pouring thousands of pounds into app development or you could lose a lot of equity up front by going to an app developer that would take that equity as part of a relationship moving forward a partnership to build the application uh, for the market yeah Exactly. You know, we it was literally like, you know, we had the money 
and we thought this is the best way this is the best thing we can do so we literally built it uh, i think i built it over the course of like three or four days um just dragging and dropping checking testing uploading it and mo- most of the time i spent is dealing with the app store and and google play that kind of relationship takes longer than building the app which is you know it's terrible you know literally waiting for the people in california who work for apple to agree your thing mm-hmm. is the longest process in in that entire thing you can build an app in like two days and you're waiting for apple for three weeks to give, to give you an answer um you know to give you some sort of time scales uh so we went and did that and we launched it and we started getting again we started getting a lot of businesses coming on saying we like it can we can we be on there can we use it and then before we could really test that and before we could really um, figure out if this was a good platform or not, we actually then got a CTO in who'd seen our, you know, our concept mm-hmm. and seen how it was going to work and what it was look like and how it was going to function and say, I can code and I can do it better. So then that was it. So it's like, okay, well, we've spent, you know, essentially we spent, you know, 300 pounds making a prototype that got us to the next stage. And then that CTO was able to build the app for us. It, you know, some people may have seen that as like a, as a waste because we could have just maybe we could have done it a different way, but it actually allowed us to build something and to actually think about not only the the, the images, because every entrepreneur has an image about what they want. They can see it. They can see it in their mind. But we then had to put it onto paper and we had to build it ourselves, you know, actually think about the functionalities, where it goes, how it interlinks, you know, what what's your user journey like on, on a phone? Because we could li- you could literally download it and look at it. And it actually brought the idea to life. So when we then we went to a CTO, they went, brilliant, I can make this. There was no like three weeks of going back and forth, you know, send me a new design, send me a new feature list. It was like, yes, I'm down. I can download it. I can see what you want to do. I'll do it better. With a positive point of view that you've actually accelerated the time to delivery potentially because you've already got the framework, the idea visualized in a product to enable the CTO to, to deliver. Oh, personally. Yeah. yeah, completely. And as much as I, you know, I, I saw the prices of these, you know, you can build your own apps, you know, the scalability is always going to be an issue for these things. You know, they're not built for thousands of people to use them. They're built for smaller audiences. So the fact that we could use that as a stepping stone mm-hmm. to then build an app that was more scalable was, I mean, it worked out perfect for us. We got to where we wanted to be. You know, we got a, another co-founder in who could build our service for us. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they did, you know, in a, in a very quick space of time. So for us, it was just a, it was a win-win win and like i said some people may see it as a bit of a waste the fact that we never really released it and never really used it but it got us to where we needed to be on a very cheap path you know, really you know seriously cheap path so we went from having no product to going through facebook building our own app to then having our own app and that whole journey cost us like 300 pounds in like six months so it really is a, it was a fairly good return on mm. our end mm. definitely so where where are you today in terms of the development of the app? So after our first, after we built it first, we then had an alpha test. Uh, that went pretty well. That was just like a week testing in Leeds City Centre. We then went away um, and released it again for like uh, four or five weeks, again in Leeds City Centre, and that went really well. And then, you know, it was, it was good, it was built and it was working, but we sort of hit a bit of an impasse with it in terms of the actual app side of things. And it wasn't really, it's not, it wasn't really with the product that the problem was, you know, everyone saw, everyone could sort of see the product was working and it could be scaled and the internal abilities that we had as a team, we could scale it, you know, we mm-hmm. could do it. It was more of an issue with the the ideological products with retailers. If you build anything that requires input from clients, the relationship is very two-way at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you always have to consider what they want as well as what you can deliver. And so the technology with them came a bit, it became a bit gray and murky to be honest it wasn't that it was unachievable because everyone said it was it was that some of the things that we needed was a lot of a lot of back and forth Mm -hmm. from major supermarket retailers who i don't really need to name because (laughs) there's only like four in the country it it required a lot of their not money but time and even though we had a product for fresh face guys coming to them asking for a lot of time and effort it was probably a step too far Mm -hmm. to be honest so it was a bit of a it was a a really big turning point in our company because we saw that you know, we had built something. We strive for so long to build the product and we knew that people wanted it. You know, we had hundreds and hundreds of downloads for it. We released like a sign up campaign to when it's going to be in your area. And we had thousands and thousands of people wanting it. People messaging us from all over the country saying, come here, you know, can you come here? When you're releasing it in, you know, Manchester and Newcastle in London and literally everywhere. But then it was the clients that were holding out on us. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of stuck because we couldn't, scale the product without their support going all the way back to the facebook group of having us in the store writing the products down we wanted to make that a data flow an information flow 
So instead of us going into the store, they will just send it to us, which is the only way it can scale. But that was the sticking point, to be brutally honest. That was where we were really struggling. So we kind of had to put the kind of the app development side on hold slightly and refocus on some of the other aspects of our products. So going from a company that is an app, a consumer-facing company, you know, we were a B2C firm. Mm. We are now scaling that back slightly and being more of a B2B firm. The app had two ends, it had a front end and a back end, you know, as, as all as all software services do. And we're really now looking to focus on the the back end of the service and seeing because that's a it's an easier sell to be honest it's more of the data analysis side of things it's a lot easier to to accomplish and do and we could start making a difference then with a view to make we bring with introducing the app in the future but i guess it's just a, a big change of our route to market because it's an easier sell to clients mm-hmm. our utopian vision of of yellow label and what it could become what it could do it's too difficult to sell in this climate and there are I can, I can list off like hundreds of reasons why it's too big of a sell or why it's too difficult. Part of them are problem, part of them not our problem. You know, there is stuff with the climate that would mean that people are not willing to take the chance on this. But it all goes down to, again, thinking about our, our entrepreneurial journey. How do we get this product to market? Right. Do we wait or do we change and release something and go again? It's the same exact decision we had with doing the Facebook group, making our own app. You know, do we stubbornly bang our head against this brick wall mm. and really believe in ourselves or do we say, no, someone's not ready. Let's change. And then maybe, maybe we can get back to it later. Right. Or so maybe not. There is a, a growing populace that are getting more and more dependent on food banks and other ways to source food. And in my opinion, I think the immediacy of such a product platform would be very helpful to a lot of people. A lot of people. Yeah. And with the likes of Brexit and certainty. I said the word, sorry. <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to yeah. sco- scoot around it, but now, now you dropped the uh, B-bomb. <laughs> I'll talk about it. But in terms of the economy uncertainty, what's going to happen to the, the UK economy as a result of this change? What will businesses do in terms of pricing? All unknown at this point in time. Yeah. Well, I think you have kind of hit the nail on the head without wanting to put words in our like clients' mouths. Mm-hmm. Um, the food industry as a whole is one that is going to be is one that's really on the brink of being very heavily affected. You know, most of our food, fresh food, food that, again, fridge food, most of it comes from Europe. Most of it, you know, all of our fruit and veg is grown in Spain and Italy and the Mediterranean countries. Ideologically aside, that will probably push food prices up. You know, hypothetically, you know, if you if you look at all the arguments and if there's any export duties on food coming into the UK, mm-hmm. that will push food prices up because, and they that will be put onto the consumer. Supermarkets aren't going to take the hit um, for like a 20p <laughs> orange you know they're going to put make it a 25p orange and put it on the consumer which in turn if wages are stagnating which they pretty much are across the board in the country that means that people's standard living goes down and that means they become more reliant on if not food banks they become more reliant on cheaper food mm. you know so either that will hit the restaurant industry because no one's paying to go out anymore because they're paying for just loaves of bread and milk or it means they switch from tesco's to aldi you know, or or they or they have to drop out of Aldi and go to food banks. You know, there'll be a big drop if, if your if your income doesn't go up. There'll be a big drop in terms of what you can afford to pay for in terms of your food. Food is a necessity. You can't not buy it. If you think about should I buy this TV or not, and you're unsure, uncertain about your financial future, you just don't buy it. <laughs> it's a very it's a very simple thing. A TV is a want, but food is a need. So you have to find a way to afford your food. And Brexit makes that very, very difficult. It should make our product more appealing, the mass mm-hmm. market. But in turn, because of that uncertainty, I think that retailers sourcing out a big chunk of time to give to us that issue when the issue is still unknown. Like if if, if, if Tesco's knew what was going to happen with Brexit, they might say, okay, we know what's going to happen. We can predict what our food price is going to be for the next 10 years. Mm. Therefore, we can invest our time and effort into your service and making it good and useful and getting people using it. Because they don't know, they're risking their time and effort into a service that may be needed, may not be needed. They may need to change their wholesale supply chain because of what's about to happen. So I can understand why you'd be not willing to risk lots of hours at this point in time. Then on the other hand, each retailer I know in terms of their data, they're very protective. Yes. And working with a partner can be sometimes challenging in exposing that data to provide you with value mm-hmm. in delivering the service to the end consumer. Yeah, food waste is one of the few areas of, let's say, public information or public interest where data is completely private. At the moment, there are some companies like Tesco's is quite good at actually releasing their food waste data outside of their AGM reports. But 
it's still a, a company initiative. So they can or they cannot. They, they, don't, they don't have to. Um, it's not like in France or in some other countries that are a bit more, let's say, forward thinking, whereby you have to release your stats. More than like a transparency issue, it is like a, it's a financial issue at the end of the day. Like if you have to throw a piece of food in the bin, you have foregone all income on that item of food. You bought it. It's now gone out of date and you have to throw it away. So you've lost. That's a bit, that's a cost on your company. And the plight of Tesco's finances has been well well documented mm-hmm. on the front pages of all mm-hmm. every British newspaper. So it's in every company's, every supermarket's KPI to not only reduce, to reduce food waste. If you're being cynical, that's because they want to increase profits. You know, there, there's a causal relationship there. If, if you stop food being chucked away, you gain revenue from... Well, that's a byproduct, isn't it? It's it's a byproduct, yeah. yeah. So do you want to, it's a nice thing to say I want to reduce food waste for a a moral or an ethical reason. Realistically, it'll hit the bottom line and it'll make them more money. Mm -hmm. So that's why, that's why people want it if you're a, if you're a retailer. Now, there are lots of other alternatives, just throwing it away in the bin. There is anaerobic digestion, I think it's called, where you turn it into a gas Mm -hmm. and you turn it into dog food Mm -hmm. um, or or pet food, or you can try and give it away to charity. Well, I think that, that, you know, all of those suggestions are brilliant in their in and to their own rights. They deal with a problem, they don't solve a problem. It's it's like how do you stop a house that's on fire rather than stopping the fire starting? It's that kind yeah, of where where where, yeah. do, where do you solve the problem? Do you solve it before it starts, or do you do you have a solution once the problem is there? So for us, we were the you know we were downstream. We were saying let's not waste that food. Let's try and give it into people's hands. You know, let's put it into their kitchens. Let them eat. Let them, you know how give them the food rather than ah, this food has been wasted, what do we do with it? Mm. That kind of thing. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shift in food. We will prevent food waste. We don't stop it yeah. if, if, there's, if there's a nuance, if there's nuance there. Yeah, that does make sense. So we're here and now. We've got the application. Uh, it's available, is it, at the moment? Um, you can download it. It's not, it's not live. There is no data going in and out of it, um, but you can see what it, what it looks like um, if you want to download it and if you want to follow us on you know, Facebook and Instagram. We often post stuff on there. On our website, you can sign up to see when it'll be available for you. But chances are that the, the kind of front-end use for it, mm-hmm. um, it will not be available in the kind of near, the near future. So if you download, don't expect anything on, in there for, for some time, unless something drastically changes. Um, so for, just staying with yellow label at the moment then so what's the the horizon across the next 12 months what what is your activity what is your plan um our plan is to seriously develop the data analysis side of the company so the two points you have the front end app which consumers use mm-hmm. and then you have the back end software which is what businesses interact with. And this is basically a big data analysis center. We kind of pitch it as imagine like a world where everyone has a different price for an item of food. I might buy chicken for £2, whereas you might buy chicken for £3 or £1.50. But no, but no one knows that. So Tesco's have to put a single price on an item. Through serious data analysis and through bringing in third-party data sets, you can start to almost predict the different price points you can allow for items of food. So let's say that um, let, let, let's say that um, Tesco's want to reduce a chicken. You know, mm-hmm. let's, let's, just, let's just keep on using chicken. They, they want to reduce a chicken, and it's like five o'clock on a on a Thursday. Through real time data analysis, we can be able to say to them, "You should reduce it to this price to maximize profit." Ultimately, to to make sure it's sold. Ulti- right. Ultimately, okay. Um, like that that would go in. That that's a factor into it. If they want to maximize profit, they keep it at full price. <laughs> you know, so at some point you have to think. I actually want to sell this item. So what do I reduce it to? You know, store policy, they have their own algorithms that kind of predict this, but they can't do it on micro levels like a third party can. That's really you know? interesting. So we can, I, I, I probably shouldn't give away too much, but you can use things like um, like weather reports. Everyone knows what the weather is. You know, this is a public data set. So if you can just add that in, so actually it's not, it's really sunny outside. You don't reduce the ice cream that much. It's very interesting you say that because I was speaking to... Uh, in my old work line of work selling enterprise asset management software so it's uh, machine maintenance and it was all to do with the car wash and they were looking to gather the the weather data because it impacts on the volume of cars that will go through their yeah. their system and then therefore associated revenues that they would get so they could actually align their their human resource the people washing the cars as well as the machines and the maintenance team yeah, uh, to be at the optimal lean environment to again 
maximize their margins. Well, that's the thing, and the, the but and these data sets aren't difficult to get. You know, these are public, publicly available mm. things. Mm. You just have to build a system that allows you to access them and influence decisions. So I can imagine with the car wash, it's probably it's probably difficult because it impacts like staff levels possibly, and um, so that is difficult to do on a not a large scale, but to do in the future, you know, think, oh, I actually need, it's not going to rain for like six months. Maybe I need to hire one more staff member. Mm. But if you talk about food and there is someone in the store at that point about to reduce the price of this chicken, if we can just quickly tell them, actually, no, it's this price, then it happens. You know, it can happen in a split second. You know, it doesn't. It's, it's not a massive shift in their process, in their reduction process. It's just changing the algorithm slightly or adding, adding more stuff into the algorithm and then producing the price. This is the broad thing that we're focusing on at the moment. We have had fairly successful talks with this side of the business. Um, it's a lot simpler for people to understand, to be brutally honest. You know, everyone can see the everyone can see the advantages of it. You know, using data analysis to improve your processes and ultimately make you more money is a very common place. It, it's, it's almost expected now. You know, so with regards to the analytics then, can I go as far to say it's machine learning that you're looking to apply those sort of algorithms? Yes. Artificial intelligence? Yeah. Um, very broadly, yes. It is allowing a it is allowing a machine, an algorithm, to pick up on changes in the environment you're in mm-hmm. to then produce a price. Um, and that is on a postcode by postcode basis. Adding things like the weather, obviously weather changes from mm-hmm. different areas of the country. Yeah. You can also use things like traffic flows to figure out, like, actually, do you know what? Hypothetically, it's a massive accident, you know, six miles away. So no one is coming this way right now. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to reduce things more because there's not enough foot traffic going to come in because traffic flows are changing. Or there's a big football game on and there's going to be loads of people coming past. You know, it was, re- it was rescheduled for Tuesday. You know, now now, now if you, you don't have to reduce the price as much because it's going to be more footfall, more people coming in. Again, by using data analytics, you can almost tell what kind of people are going to be doing that. You know, maybe you can tell that actually there's going to be loads of Ben's that go past this shop every Tuesday and we can see that Ben always buys chicken and he always buys it at 30% off. So don't reduce it by 50, reduce it by 30 because that's Ben's price point and then he can come and buy it and everyone's happy. You know, so it's just, like I said, it's really microing it down and a human can't do this realistically. It's it's impossible for a human to make that many that many decisions at once. So it has to be AI and machine learning mm-hmm. and There'll be a new name for it in, in two years' time. Of course, of course. Um, but yeah, that's the that's the idea of it. Great. So are you getting any of the retailers to partner with you in terms of the development of this? Are you actively looking for investment? Um, so in terms of uh, the kind of the retailer engagement or the B2B side of it, mm-hmm. um, they are interested in the product, not in the, the process. So if we if we have a product for them, then that is that is grand. Um, but they're not interested in taking any equity or any or any stake in the company. When you have a marketplace like food selling in the uk it sounds very naive because we haven't raised a huge amount but to take money from one of them probably is a red flag for someone else hypothetically will morrison's want to pay for a service that tesco's helped develop or will tesco's allow morrison's to benefit from a service that they've put money and time into so it's it's a very difficult environment to to exchange money and that 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 is a viewpoint across the retail sector however from a technology standpoint mm-hmm. there are many occasions where different providers it, they can call them frenemies yeah where they provide services to help each other they partner with each other to access the end client yeah and eventually one one or the other gets acquired yeah uh, but it it's quite interesting you say that because the likes of amazon are moving into the food market food space as well yeah watch this space (laughs) that sort of mindset will change very rapidly once they realize that thinking a media thinking a technology first type of company that services the need for food yeah will certainly make waves yeah well i think that i think i think you're quite right and i I do think the supermarkets are slowly realizing this I, i won't name names here but there is a vast difference in the technological ability of the major eight retailers in the UK, the major eight food retailers, you know, some are at the fairly cut cutting edge, you know, in, in sort of sort of close to where American firms are at, you know, where they are. Companies like Target are incredibly advanced in terms of their analytics and what they can do and how they follow people around the store and then optimize their experience, changing barcodes almost at will because they know that they've looked at fruit for 10 minutes so they can sort of change the price at will because they know this person's really interested. But then there are some that are still stuck in the Stone Age. They don't know stuff for a long time. You know, I assumed it would be instant. I assumed that every retailer in the UK would have a very good technological background, but it's not. Uh, It's really not the case at all. So, So while I think that the ideological 
uh, sort of standpoint of the firms are changing. I think there is there is still a reluctance because of the competitive nature in, in the industry to really put their neck out for something. Every retailer we've spoken to has agreed that it has to be a across the board service. You know, no one has asked for exclusivity or a white label service because the scaling doesn't work. How many people um, actually use the Tesco's app? The, the answer is no one. You know, they've got downloads, but the answer is no one. How many people use the Asda one, Morrison's, you know, no one is, is, is the bottom answer. No, I don't. <laughs> because, yeah, no, no one does because it has no use. What, what is the point in it? I can da- order my Tesco shopping. It's easier on a browser, so I'm not going to do it off my phone. So what's the point in it? But if you have everyone there, then there's a point. You know, if, you're, if we're thinking about the app side of it again, and I always kind of link it to the flights industry or the insurance industry where you go to compare the market or you go to Skyscanner. Mm-hmm. You don't go to every individual insurer. You don't go to BA and then to EasyJet and then to Ryanair because you can just get them all in a second if you go to one place. And that's the sellability of it. You go to what you create a marketplace for this. All the retailers understand that they need to be here. They need to be in one place. Like I said, in terms of sticking their neck out and actually giving time and resources, they kind of struggle with that side of it. They're all willing to take it mm. and not compete, but they're not willing to stick the neck out for it. So therefore, you know, in terms of our, our kind of year vision and the the funding that we want and we need, um, we are looking at different sources. We've actually been in contact very recently with a number of international funding sources where often part of a, like a accelerator or a scalability program where they give you funding and take a small amount of equity and they help deliver the project you want. Because we're probably looking to pivot slightly on our product or to mm-hmm. refocus in, instead of pivot, let's say, this is very appealing because they know that they're, the money they're going to invest and the equity is going to be built for a very specific purpose that has a lot of international uh, international applicability. It's, it's it's really odd, but we being part of these like funding circles, we keep getting emails from literally here, there, and everywhere across the globe of people offering us the chance to do this. Now, normally, percentage of those chances that come through mm-hmm. are fairly slim, but it's always nice. It's all and it's always good to be associated and speaking to and in connection with all these people. I see a trend moving forwards of tech for good. Yeah, I think I think that there's there's a really nice shift at the moment that's kind of prequeling consumer mentality of I want my product to be good. That's all well and good, but with big companies there is always a financial element. Mm-hmm. Um there there has to be to be you know I'm not I'm not being like cynical here. There has to be they make money. This is what a company does. I'm 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 setting up companies to make money, you know. Yes, yes. I'm not some sort of like mega th- charitable philanthropist here. I'm I'm trying to make money for myself. But there's a really good wave at the moment of companies that are bridging the gap between doing good and making money. And I've listened to loads of really interesting talks. It's almost like capitalism 2.0 um, is the kind of broad ideology around it where everybody profits. You know, it's that kind of social enterprise, but not mm. the legally binding social enterprise. It's the looser, more acceptable term whereby I make money, you know, my clients make money, the people who buy my service get profit and get reward from it, you know, profit in, and value in terms of not money, but in terms of they are happy with the product and everybody wins, you know, suppliers are happy, demand side is happy, everyone is happy, you know, there yes. is no loser here. There is yeah. no glum faced factory worker getting paid pennies for the hour. No one is getting like uh, enslaved by the process. Everyone is happy. And so that is the kind of the, the broader way that I think, especially Western societies are moving towards that. If you can be seen as a, a nice company, you can make big strides in terms of your your brand and what you're doing for the world and yeah as, as consciousness changes that'll make that'll put you above other people okay um, so for the benefit of potential investors uh, how are you looking to monetize the b2b element yeah, um, to build? well there are several there are several ways in which this could be monetized if anyone's out there that has has like really nice ideas about this stuff then um you know please uh, hit me up and get in contact with me um because there, there, there are many ways in which you can monetize this kind of this kind of platform there could be a really really nice way where it's almost a pay-as-you-go access terminal every time that you want to reduce the price of an item of food you pay you know a tiny amount but you can literally it will you can access our you know enormous data banks that have enormous historical and accurate and real-time data and it will tell you the best price so it's almost like a page you go like Mm -hmm. oh i need to reduce Mm -hmm. this okay done i have i now have the best price for it um or or you just scale that out and you just pay for a license you pay for access to this Mm -hmm. to this data bank forever or per year that's the way you'd probably need to monetize it that way the app side of things got a very different monetization model um but this one when you're building a pure data science service you sell access you don't sell you can't really sell 
um, no. you're not selling the product there. No, that's good. That's good to hear. And I'm, I'm sure they they will change or develop over time. Oh, completely, yeah, completely. Great. You know, this is the you know this is kind of early stages, and this is the we're we're all like 26. We're not you know we we're, we're always open for ideas and how to change this. Um, so this is just the first the first idea of how we can monetize this and and kind of make it a success. Brilliant. So you come back next year. Yeah. Uh, you would have received funding from uh, and you found and received funding from a partner an yes. investment partner you've developed your product to a point where you've acquired a number of key early stage customers mm-hmm. with a view to then maybe going for an additional funding round or would you be profitable by then what's your ambition I guess it would it would depend greatly on the clients as whether we were profitable or not we have spoken to lots and lots of potentially very big clients about this when you when you're building like these kind of data analysis platforms most of the costs are sunk up front you know the kind of maintenance of this is really quite low really low when you're using ai not using man hours you're basically just paying for hosting support which is on a kind of need to basis so as long as you're pricing yourself more than the cost of hosting service you're making money in terms of like additional funding rounds that might be to might be to scale or to release into new markets but with this idea and you know kind of all the other businesses that I really like, the distance to profitability is fairly short. And that is, to me, quite important because as much as I, you know, adore companies like Uber, I really can't understand how these companies, you know, go 10 years making a loss every year and just needing more funding rounds and more funding rounds and more funding rounds. That kind of, that delivery doesn't appeal to me. You know, I quite like build a product that you can charge more than it costs to produce. Mm-hmm. You know, in in you know, year two years, I expect that if we started getting clients by this time next year, that we would be profitable at that point. Maybe not, maybe not in terms of the venture, but in terms of the day to day running of the company, sure. we'd be profitable. Very interesting. Very interesting. I I agree totally. Yeah. The the acceleration of producing a product, going to market, realizing revenue. Why not speed up the point in which you become profitable as well? Yeah. And maintaining a lean methodology. Yeah, I, 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 I literally don't see the point in planning for future funding rounds. You know, funding rounds should be for a purpose, not to continue. You know, like I, if, if you're saying, right, we'll raise this much now, and then in two years' time we'll raise another amount because we'll be about to end, you know, that, that pot of funding will be about to end, mm-hmm. I, that doesn't appeal to me. You're, you're constantly living life on the breadline. You're, you're always relying on someone else to scale your product. You know, it goes all the way back to our kind of decisions in us taking our product for ourselves and us creating the app and us doing the work for ourselves. You know, we're not relying on someone else at that point. Yeah. You know, we want to do it ourselves and becoming profitable as early as possible, even if it's like a pound, you know, even as, as long as we, you know, you're covering your business costs with the revenue you're making, that's, that's enough. You know, that's enough to start scaling and building and growing and then thinking, okay, you I've made one pound this month. How do I make two? How do I make three? How do I make four? This is after you've paid yourself, of course, because you need to feed yourself. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there, there is probably wages. The first thing that's going to come out of that yeah. profit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, but that, but that's the really, that's the really fun thing. You know, how do I take one pound and make it two? Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of profit, rather than okay, well, in six months' time, we'll raise again. And that's how I pay myself by just continually raising money and mm-hmm. just going through that vicious cycle over and over and over again. It could be a personal thing, maybe it's you know shared by yourself, but that's the way I like to run my companies. Oh, that's good to hear. Could you tell me a little bit more about some of the lessons you've learned to date, some of the challenges you may be facing even now that you could share with the listeners? The amount of <laughs> the, le- the lessons you can learn and take are are really you know are endless. To be honest, and I'm I'm sitting here in front of you. I'm like 26. I've not learned half the things I need to learn you know, on this kind of, on this kind of journey before, I would always say to anyone is like what we did is try and do things as cheaply as possible. You know, if you're going to fail, fail quickly and fail cheaply, don't pour your heart and soul and savings and family's future into something that's not going, that may not work. It may work, you know, but you, as long, if you've done the due diligence and if you've done the market research and you've spoken to customers and kind of know that if you build it, they will come. If you've done that, then perfect. Pour as much money as you need to, as long as the figures match up. But if you're going to fail, fail quickly. And that's something we didn't do for the first year. That's something we had to learn. You know, we were just sitting there trying to learn our our kind of journey and figure out really where we were going. We, we were scared to build a product, essentially, because we were scared of what people think. We're scared that we were going to fail. You know, that's the, that's the heart of it, heart mm. of the problem. You're scared you're going to fail. And I've worked with other businesses before, and I work with businesses right now, why that is still the biggest stumbling block is failure. In our society, it's different in America. It's very different in America. But in, in Britain and in, I think, you know, Europe more generally, failure is a really bad thing. 
like going bankrupt is seen as you know like having a curse on yourself and and your and your your credit rating going forward and your ability to buy a house and start a family you know it's a, it's a black cross across your record in a business it really shouldn't be like failing is fine <laughs> failing is good if you as long as you learn from it you know if you can say i failed because that's really powerful and you can take all those lessons to your next venture or just life lessons as long as you learn from your mistakes that is fine so i would say the biggest thing i've learned is don't be scared to fail an idea mm-hmm. can be rubbish most ideas are i've had you know everyone has ideas in the shower that most of them are rubbish yeah, I, <laughs> it, it's, you don't you just don't shout about it and admit <laughs> it and it's and it can be really you know everyone talks about you know share it with your family and friends and that is almost the most difficult thing because these are your peers these are people you care about that really like you you know but if they say it's brilliant then speak to the next person speak to the random on the street you know is it good or bad and if they say yes it's good then it's a definite yes if they say no okay fine speak to the next person like really don't be scared of no's and failures because you can learn as long as you learn why that's better for you as a person as an individual moving forwards uh, to the detriment of my family i share many many <laughs> ideas and they it's got to a stage where it's like I've got an idea and they go, oh, here we go again. <laughs> Everyone sit down. Yeah. <laughs> go, pour, go pour a brew out. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. So one of the lessons uh, was around not fearing failure, fail fast, fail cheaply. Uh-huh. There's a, an area of learning that I, I'm focused on and that is building out a business and establishing the right partners in the first place. Mm-hmm. So has there any sort of experiences that you've come across to date where early doors, it may not necessarily have been the right people in the business? Yeah, um, you're definitely going to get that. It depends what side of the fence you're just on. I was both lucky and maybe you might say unfortunate in the sense that with uh, your label, we set it up as three people on the same same uni course. You know, so we all had very similar skill sets, um, which is sort of a negative. If you're, you know, you're looking at building a company, you want three people who have a very, very different skill sets, very different interests. You know, you want someone who's good at marketing, someone good at tech, someone's good at business. You know, B two B. You know, someone's good at finance or legal. Yeah, the the plethora of options. We were all fairly similar in terms of our skill set. We were all friends, which sort of helped in the first instance and helped us sort of grow and talk quite openly about the idea but we were all similar so again we're going all the way back to you know we were three guys pitching to you know the uk's biggest food retailers it doesn't look good when you have three carbon copies sitting in front of you you know you don't have a team you have three co-founders who are all the same person you know three clones so in in that sense it was bad but i know from speaking to a lot of like sole traders and people who start the idea on their own getting people in is very very difficult because it's it's only ever been your internal sound box that has had these ideas and they're only ever banging around the inside of your head and so anyone who comes in at that point can be considered an outsider and oh you're attacking my brainchild you know my love i'm going to say no but in actual fact they probably had a really good idea you just haven't listened to them because you've been so focused on it's mine it's mine it's mine it's mine it's just me it's just me that you you fail to consider Mm. outside opinions so there is no like def- there's no like right or wrong answer here there is no perfect path you know ideally you would find people you probably ideally you probably find people who were all slightly different to you with different opinions different viewpoints that all had different skill sets but in reality that's like <laughs> really hard to do how do you find these people where do you go are they free are they, are they available were they will they put the time in are they as good as they say they are do you get on with them do you need to get on with them like there are so many questions if you're happy working with that person and you think that person offers value then it's probably good enough. But saying that, um, to contradict myself about the fifth time in this in this paragraph, the fact that we were friends that when we started out the company meant that we did have, or we could have, very, very long arguments with each other because we're friends. We were able to just have big arguments, then go to the pub after it, which is quite nice. Um, it's quite helpful. But because we were so familiar with ourselves and we were just like, I disagree, I disagree. And, you know, we were all 26-year-old lads. We do have egos. Like, as much as I try and be as humble as possible, when you get into a room, you bring your ego with you. And even if you don't, if you don't think the person, the person's idea is good or it's valuable, you own part of that company. You either have to share your opinion or you potentially watch your company become something you don't want it to and to the detriment of everyone in that room. So you have to argue, you have to shout, you have to disagree with people. But that's part of the problem or part of the solution, more rather, you know, it depends what side of the fence you sit on. So it really depends on how you like working. If you like working on your own, don't like other people's opinions and you can function on your own don't look for a co-founders unless you really need to but if you don't have all the solutions then do it like it, it really it really is down to i guess yourself as a business owner what do you like doing it's your company you have the majority set uh, shareholding do you need people okay go find the people do you not need people okay don't bother this and it's as simple as that it has to be your decision there's no 
there is no right or wrong or perfect mm. perfect path. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because I, I read a story recently. Now it's, it's it's been around for quite a while. A technology company where there were three founders. One decided to leave early and sold their shares for a BMX bike. Oh, really? <laughs> and it turned out that the company then grew grew to a point where it sold and they exited at 170 million wow, okay. pounds bought by Microsoft. Okay. So his shares from not wanting to put the grind and effort in up front, uh-huh. taking the BMX and doing something else has cost him 25 million pounds. Yeah. So if you look introspectively, if it's a collective, a good idea, focus on working together to achieve that main objective. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really that's a really nice point. Um, I guess I was got to hope that the guy really needed a bike, you know, really <laughs> yes. really want. Maybe it was Tony Hawk, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe that was Tony Hawk, and he's gone to make a very successful career with, with his BMX. I doubt it. Um, <laughs> but like, but but I think that's a really crucial point. That as long as everyone is pulling in the same direction, and you can see, you can all collectively, you know, hive mind envisage the future then you have to put your petty egos aside and mm. you say, okay, fine, I'll give a bit and I'll take a bit and we'll, we can we can work towards that that aim. But it's when you have fundamental differences with how the company is running in which you sometimes you have to say, yes, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to go or I'm going to force you to go, <laughs> more, mm. more, you know, maybe more to the point. You know, what was it like 12 people founded Facebook, but you only remember one, you know, so something went on through Facebook's journey that meant that Mark Zuckerberg is the only one that people care about. But I wouldn't mind being number two or three. Oh Facebook, no, not at all. You know I mean? <laughs> no, not at all. You know, but it's like it's like everyone has their own exit point, mm-hmm. whether it's tomorrow or it's in five years' time. It all depends on your your personal situation, your business situation. Like, you know, again, don't be afraid to just walk out of a business because it's not working for you. You might think it's got a great future, but if you're not willing to spend three years getting to that point, you're either going to drag everyone down or make everybody's shares worth nothing. So just like if it's right for you, then just kind of do it. You have to be you have to be very honest with yourself at these points. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. So are there any particular sources of knowledge that you go to? <laughs> it's probably going to sound a bit um, bit contradictory and wrong, but I don't really like reading books about business. That's a, It's a very personal thing, but I spend a lot of my time reading anyway. Emails or documents or doing stuff that sometimes the idea of ending the day and then reading about business, sometimes <laughs> it just I just like, nah, not, not, <laughs> not today. So I would consider myself a continual learner. Um, I really would, but I but I try and find other ways to do it. So, exhibit A, I listen to podcasts, <laughs> um, which is a really good. It's like a, you don't have to concentrate to learn, which is my I I like that. You don't have to really concentrate, or you do things like take Udemy courses, you know, watch TED talks, you know, all these little things where you can learn, but not concentrate. You know, yeah. it's almost like tacit learning, like you know, almost like osmosis through your through your ears. There are there are definitely books out there that I would say you know go read if you haven't read you know, The Lean Startup by um, Eric Rice, I think it is, then, you know, go and read the next excerpt of that. You know, it's a big, long book. Don't bother reading it all. <laughs> but, you know, read, read a summary. Cause it, you can summarize it in like two sentences, to be honest. You can t- keep learning. But when I when I clock off at like eight o'clock at night, I'm not in the mood to read a book. And the so, biggest way of learning is doing, failing and learning from the mistakes. and Exactly, yeah. Them. Like, yeah, like I've, I've got half the ideas I've brought into um, the kind of projects I'm working on have come from or have originated from like podcasts and just like and Udemy courses and just learning and, and you know doing like most people no one is the finished article you know mm. at the end of the day so if you're not willing to keep learning then you're going to get to a point I guess what I'm trying to say is like find a way of learning that's right for you if it's books brilliant there's, I bet there's a billion really really good business books out there that you should do I'm just not I'm just not happy to do that so I try and like I said I listen to podcasts and watch videos instead mm, great Great, thank you. So, is there anybody in particular that inspires you? Um, if he shut his mouth a bit more, I would say Elon Musk. Because <laughs> um, as much as it's it's a very it's a very difficult point, um, in that most I can't think of many really really successful business people that I actually like as a as a human. You know, everyone used to idolize Mark Zuckerberg until he appeared in front of Congress <laughs> and was like a lizard robot. Um, <laughs> but but you know the the work they do is really inspirational you know so it's where do you take where you know where do you take that inspiration from you know i going all the way to elon musk you know his investments um and the work he does with his not necessarily like tesla well tesla's pretty good but in his other companies is it solar energy his other company or the, the solar power mm-hmm. um, companies that he runs um the way they're trying to turn like roof tiles into solar panels and make them like almost see-through to so turn it into glass and then you know that as a 
as an aim is absolutely amazing you know put all the money you can behind that you know that because if if you could if you could solve that issue then electricity will become free so sam what would you do differently knowing what you know now and what would i do differently i would put a lot more of my time into figuring out solutions rather than being worried about problems so to go all the way back to the start of our kind of entrepreneurial journey like i said we spent sort of a year banging our head about trying to do the product the perfect way and it took one of our co-founders to spend a bit of time away from the company to then give us sort of a fresh a fresh insight you know it was, it was, we, we kind of just like refused to jump that hurdle you know we thought no no we're right we're right we're right so what i would do differently is i would just say as almost as soon as you hit a hurdle how do you solve it don't just say my answer is right do you think okay mm. assume you're not right and figure out a way of how to change that and yes or no next yes or no next yes or no next like i wouldn't i would never the business essentially stagnated i think for a while while we were looking for investment and trying to do all that stuff we weren't moving forwards we were standing still and assuming that the right path was going to eventually come to us so knowing what i know now i would never let my business stand still i would say right hit a hurdle how big is it you know you have to analyze how big that hurdle is can i overcome it yes or no yes okay do it no okay find a solution you know solve solve the problem and then and then go out and do it great thank you sam so Time is up for this part of our conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. For the benefit of the listeners, uh, we're going to talk about uh, another venture as entrepreneurs have multiple fingers in multiple pies. <laughs> Excuse the expression. Uh, but we'll talk about that in the next podcast. I'll see you there. Brilliant. Thank you so much. So what do you think? We'll have another interesting story to dive into next week. Looking forward to it already. Some questions to you in the meantime. What is your story? What is your reality right now? And what are you working towards? Let me know. So you can connect with me on Twitter. Just type in Bash in the search and you'll find me. So Bash, B-A-S-H, easy. On Instagram, it's Bash Reality. So that's Bash underscore reality. And on LinkedIn, Benjamin Ashmore. Make sure you subscribe and until next week, cheers. <laughs>